Hi, friends, and welcome to the Story Forge podcast. I'm your host, Lyle Smith, and just to remind you all, the objective of this show is to talk to a variety of people from a wider variety of backgrounds about what they do, what their careers are, sometimes how they started their businesses, and how they are responding to the challenges that are facing them to succeed in normal and beyond normal circumstances. Today's conversation was a wonderful opportunity for me. How many of you out there, when you were a child or a youngster, remember when some adult in your life asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up? Now, how many of you answered at least once, I want to be an astronaut? How many of you actually meant it? Greg Johnson remembers watching Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin land on the moon when he was seven years old. And that was when he decided that was the path he wanted to follow for himself. He became, among other things, an aeronautical engineer, a U.S. Air Force pilot, fighter pilot, combat pilot, instructor in any number of cool aircraft, and eventually pilot of two missions at the Space Shuttle Endeavor, including the second-to-last mission of the Space Shuttle program in 2011. Since then, he's gone on to numerous fascinating jobs, including running cases, the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space, that managed and ran the U.S. National Laboratory aboard the International Space Station. And of late, he's gotten into numerous entrepreneurial efforts, exploring private business opportunities in space and STEM education. That's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. He's done some amazing things, had some amazing adventures, made some amazing friends, and was gracious enough to talk to me here about what he's doing now. He's the first guest I've had who has a Wikipedia page, mostly correct information too, and he's using all of his astounding experience to make the world a better place. From Space Nation, the world's first space travel company, to Newton's Road, a not-for-profit in Michigan focused on expanding educational opportunities in science and technology fields. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So where are you now? I'm in Houston, Texas, in the house that I moved into 22 years ago when I first joined the astronaut corps. And specifically, I'm in the music room, which is now a converted, uh, you know, video studio for, uh, you know, for the quarantine and lockdowns. And so, but I do, I have a piano here. I come from a family of musicians. I've taken down most of the um, family musical photos and replaced them with some of my space stuff. Right. But um, but this is where I do all my recordings and I've got a but I've got a Beach Brothers guitar signed by Brian Wilson. Oh, that's cool. Trumpets and other things. So we're a really musical family. And and this 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 studio has kind of become or this music room has kind of become my studio. Very good. Very So are, are you a musician yourself? I play a little trumpet and uh, play some keys. I did find a keyboard up on the space station, my second flight. And we had the first, I believe, on orbit rock band. With a flute, a guitar, and uh, and a keyboard. I love that. I it was fun. That. Um, yeah. So we'll, well, we'll get to that. But um, you, I, I was joking earlier. You were the you're my first guest to have his own Wikipedia page. So I found a whole bunch of information that I didn't know about before. So if I have any of this wrong, we can blame Wikipedia. Well, what's okay? So <laughs> the way Wikipedia works is other people create those pages. That, page has created itself. I've had no inputs to it whatsoever. I I think some people do 
uh, interface with wiki, but, but I don't, I just look at it and, you know, yeah. I look at the sources, they look halfway credible. I go, okay, I'm not going <laughs> to lie about that story. Okay. That's true. No. Yeah. It's funny. Well, I don't, there was no, didn't seem anything that would strike me as embarrassing on there. So I think you're Yeah. How you get call signs, somebody put something in about that and, and, and it's true. So I can't deny it. Okay. Oh, that's the, the name box. The, yeah. It came from cardboard desert storm. Oh, that's, yeah. That's a true that's, story. Uh, much to my chagrin. I would love to be Iceman or Maverick or have a cool call sign like that, but I ended up with box. I tried to shed it about three times and finally it just stuck. It just, you know? yeah. I said that to somebody you don't, uh, I, I had a guy I worked with at one point who, uh, he was a CEO or a self-styled CEO and he, he, he liked to use the word visionary when when describing himself and I, I used to say Jeff man you you don't you don't get to call yourself a visionary that's other people <laughs> that's right. call you that <laughs> that's exactly right <laughs> and nickname nicknames are kind of the same way I guess call signs are kind of the same way um so you know it says you were born in England which I didn't know is that true yeah my father was a military musician uh, he, he ran the USAFE band for a number of years uh, twice actually when I was a kid between seven and 13 years old, we lived in Germany, but he was also a band leader in the UK around the time my brother and I were born. So I was overseas to military parents. So I'm a military brat, uh, but a, but a U.S. citizen. So. Fantastic. That's, that's, <laughs> and I was wondering about that too, because there were multiple citations of like uh, high school in Ohio and different places you've lived which of course leads me to an assumption that you were, you know, throw the term around military brat growing up. Is that, is that about right? That's true. And so dad got his uh, sunset tour at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And so I was there from eighth grade through graduation. And then I went off to the academy and he retired just a couple of years later than he retired up in Michigan. Uh -huh. um, at the lake house so very good and you so you he was air force and you went right in the air force or the, the academy anyway that's right that that's true air force academy so yeah. i was actually working for the air force in college at you know at the academy fantastic so was that was your was your dad the connection was that the because you make a choice into what what branch of service you might go into uh, when we do well that? my dad probably was the single uh, biggest influence on me during my upbringing, you know, my, my dad and mom, my, so I was always hanging around military, you know, air, air force bases right. and seeing airplanes. And so I was exposed to, uh, you know, aviation. Dad took me up in a couple airplanes of his buddies. So I did get exposure to flying. Mm -hmm. I really though was a pretty geeky student. I wanted to be an engineer and then fly to be a better aeronautical engineer as it turns out. Oh. Um, but then when I started flying, I realized how much I loved that. So um, that long story short, I ended up being more of a professional pilot than an engineer. Yeah, I don't think you get into uh, flying uh, fighter aircraft um, without having a love of being off the ground, right? Absolutely, and, and I love all forms of flying. I, I, I loved being an instructor pilot. Mm -hmm. Right after I got my wings, they retained me as an instructor in Lubbock, uh, Texas. Mm -hmm. But flying a fighter was great, very high tech, uh, state of the art airplane, the F 15E. Mm -hmm. And then that was the attraction of test pilot school. Uh, one of them was that I wanted to test new airplanes and new technologies. And it was also a feeder in one of the feeders into the astronaut corps, which was a long shot. Right. But, um, but I loved, I loved being a test pilot. And then it, it all worked out for me to end up with NASA. 
Right. And, uh, you know, the test, well, test pilot has got to be a little bit of a, uh, I'm, I'm this is me assuming. You know, I'm, I, this is this is the guy speaking who, who doesn't like to go on roller coasters that go upside down. So, uh, but as a, as a test pilot, it's got to make at least some kind of connection with engineering too, because, you know, engineers are always building something new, trying something new, testing something new. And it's that connection between the two. Uh, it, it seems like a, a, a close marriage to me. Well, yes, absolutely. Uh, a test pilot is an engineering pilot. Mm -hmm. When we go through test pilot school, we get a lot of engineering uh, rebluing. And uh, it's a different kind of engineering position, uh, but it is a merge of flying and and also engineering and design. So, okay. so it was really exciting for me. It was perfect, and and I was lucky to test some really fun airplanes when I was out at Edwards for four years. Right. We had some engine tests where you're you're doing the entire envelope of the you're you're flying the entire envelope of the of the fighters, and we were testing GE one twenty nine engines in F-15s, and these are 30,000 pound uh, thrust engines on an airframe that weighs about 30,000 pounds, so thrust to weight ratio of two to one, <laughs> I mean, and, and we go from you know the, the slowest you can fly all the way to 800 knots calibrated on the ground, that's supersonic. We did those wow. tests over the Pacific Ocean, and then also up to Mach 2.5 up in, um, up I have, in the stratosphere. So it's absolutely amazing test. And then we also did some other interesting tests. We did a, a, an F-15 spin test, mm -hmm. and we also tested a thrust vectoring technology that, that's currently on the F-35, or it started off as a technology that grew into these thrust vectoring engines you see on the F-35. So a lot of meaningful flight tests mm -hmm. during those four years at Edwards. Fantastic. And it's funny because when you, when you hear a uh, test pilot, at least, you know, from from my chair, which again we've already established is a very ground based chair. Um, you think you know the right stuff. You think you know test pilot. You, you think Chuck Yeager and all that kind of stuff. And I know we talked about this once a while ago uh, that you know Chuck Yeager. Yes, Chuck was uh, he he was he opened the air show at Edwards Air Force Base every year with a sonic boom. Oh wow! When I was at North Carolina after Desert Storm. Mm -hmm. I somehow got caught up in the air show circuit. So when I went to Edwards and was assigned for four years, I had that air show stink on me, if you will. Who's, who's done an air show? You know, hide under the table. But I got involved with the air shows out at Edwards, and it was a very different breed of air shows. And getting to know Chuck Yeager uh, through that process was fun. I remember the final year I was at Edwards, I actually was in charge of the air show itself and I needed to find an instructor pilot in the F-15 to fly with Chuck Yeager right and so I was shaving that morning looking in the mirror going wow I'm an instructor pilot in the F-15 <laughs> I think I'll, I think I'll see it for myself you know and so I call him up on the phone he came out on Columbus Day and and we took a, a couple rides in the F-15 he showed me that he could make a sonic boom hit the ground within seconds wow. with no instrumentation, no internal navigation system, no GPS, just seat of the pants. He could fly at 30,000 feet, go Mach 1.6, and the sonic boom would hit the ground within a couple seconds of when he said. I mean, wow. some people can't, some people can't do that with instrumentation because it takes a sonic boom about a second every thousand feet. Right. 
5,000 feet, I'm sorry. So if you're at 30,000 feet, you've got to time it so your sonic boom can travel for six seconds before it hits the ground. That's amazing. Well, I had Lieutenant Johnson, a lieutenant on the ground with a radio, and I was talking to him, with, and he had a, a watch. And sure enough, one of the sonic booms he did on that, on that flight with him was a second early. And then the second one was two seconds late. So I figure, okay, this man knows what he's doing. That's, that's and of course, Chuck Yeager, you know, he, he was a great pilot. He was in his seventies when he and I flew uh, way yeah. back in the nineties. Yeah. And uh, he, I, I didn't touch the stick for two flights. He, <laughs> he hadn't been in F-15, I think for two years. He alternated between F-15s, F-16, F-15 at that mm-hmm. time to start the air show. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had not flown the F-15 for over two years. And, and he, it was just like, yesterday that he was in the airplane i was amazed very talented pilot like what they say about riding a bike right <laughs> uh he's but that's funny because it's it's um you know i mean I, I presume you know the right stuff i know the right stuff the movie yep. and, mm-hmm. yeah and there's a there's that that dividing line between the uh the pilot the test pilots before then before the space program and the test pilots that became the astronauts and uh, and Jaeger, of course, is is from sort of the old school, and they make a big part of the story about that. But um, you know that what you just said about flying by the seat of your pants. I mean, he's he's a, a pilot of the old school, I guess you'd say, right? He he was, and it's interesting. The day that I was selected for the astronaut corps, I was with him at was what was called the Gathering of Eagles. It was a, a gathering for at Air Command and Staff College in Montgomery, Alabama, Maxwell Air Force Base. And every year they have a celebration for these 600 majors that are getting this professional military training for a year. And I was designated as his escort because he was one of the 20 Eagles that was invited to this big event. Mm -hmm. And so he he was signing the lithos and I was kind of pulling the lithos Mm -hmm. that day when I was expecting a potential call to join the astronaut corps. And he knew that. And he says, don't say yes. You know, and I said, General Yeager, I said, if I'm going to make a name for myself, you know, some guy broke the sound barrier 50 years ago. I mean, there's new new horizons. Hoot Gibson was also there. It was actually the the table over. And he knew as well that I I was going to get the phone call. And I, of course, wasn't allowed to tell. So I had to wait 24 hours. But they saw it on my face. Right. And and Chuck said, you didn't say yes, did you? I didn't answer. No. <laughs> I'll tell you later. <laughs> yeah, Chuck Yeager, he was tougher than nails, but he really had a good sense of humor. Uh, and he was a he was a great guy. But that's awesome because you hear so many, you know, I mean, uh, he he maybe more than any pilot going had has, has these sort of legendary stories surrounding him. And uh, I guess it's something surrounding, you know, because everything you do in uh, an aircraft like that, that is just at the edge of everything man can do on up through spacecraft is um, just comes with legend attached to it. You know, it's just part of what you're doing. Um, so what was that like? Now, you, now you, you got the call. You're in the, you're in the astronaut corps. Um, what does that feel like? Well, it was a dream since I was seven years old. You know, I remember the, the night that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepped on the moon. I was actually in Michigan at my grandparents' house. And mom and dad woke us up after our bedtime to watch that milestone event. It was over 50. We're in the 50th year right now. It's 50 years ago. And uh, that, that set the 
bug, you know, the spark with me, but I didn't think it ever would happen. It was just a dream. But as I pro progressed through my career as, as an engineer and then as a pilot mm -hmm. and, and then as a test pilot, that dream, it, it felt like it was getting closer yeah. uh, until one, at one point you just put your hat in the ring and, and hope for the best. And see what happens. Yeah. And so you were, I mean, you were, um, I'll, I'll skip ahead. We'll, we'll get back to this, but I'll skip ahead because you actually piloted the Endeavor uh, shuttle in its right. last flight. Right. It was, mm -hmm. uh, if I read correctly, it was the second to last shuttle flight ever. Right. So Endeavor was the last of the space shuttles. It was built from, quote, spare parts after the Challenger accident. I was in all the shuttles during my 15 year career as an astronaut. I spent a lot of time as a pilot preparing, you know, helping to prepare other crews to go into space, whatnot. We'd, we'd set up the switches. We'd send them off. We'd pull them out. But Endeavor smelled like a new car. It was the newest of the fleet and my favorite space shuttle. And I was really lucky to fly it twice, you know, on its 21st flight. And then on that last 25th flight, right. I honestly didn't think I was going to get a second flight. Those flights, those last few flights were all added at the last minute. So I was very fortunate to get a second shot at it. Wow. I mean, because there's, I mean, there's a whole bunch that goes into that because you, you um, got into the astronaut corps in about 2000 or so? 1998. 98. And then yep. you flew your first mission on a shuttle. In 2008, uh, in 2008. a decade later. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then, well, I'll get to the next question next, but, but what is that? Is, is that like just waiting your turn? How does that, how does that go? Well, there are a lot of factors that play into when you get to fly. I think the longest wait that I've heard of was Story Musgrave. He waited 16 years, I think, before he got to fly. Others, if their timing is right, they might only have to wait two or three years. Mm -hmm. But usually astronauts have to wait the better part of six to eight, nine, ten years on average to fly their first flight for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons that we were our class was delayed is we had an accident in 2003 that delayed the the shuttle program for over two years. Mm -hmm. so in that process, we analyzed the space shuttle, uh, not just the thermal protection system, which is what was the cause of the of the Columbia accident, but all of the subsystems of the space shuttle, we looked at them uh, very closely and improved a lot of those systems. Mm -hmm. So the shuttles we flew post Columbia were actually the safest flights of the program. Um, but, but also as an astronaut, I mean, it takes about a year and a half, two years to go through the basic astronaut candidate course. And then you go into a pool of assignable astronauts. But again, they, they fill that pipeline with, with astronauts with lots of different skill sets so they can mix and match and get the right crews for the right missions. Right. Yeah. And it's in so many, so much of what you do preparing for a launch. And I see this today with the, uh, you know the SpaceX launch, SpaceX launches and the ULA launches and all that. As as they count down, they go through a whole checklist of, of everything, and so much of it is layered around safety. Uh, even the unmanned flights, just to make sure this is successful. And um, you know, I got to think after Columbia. I we know um, my wife met and introduced me to uh, a woman, Ann Miklos. Who was a uh, worked on the Columbia at one point or another, mm -hmm. and and she she speaks about it often uh, publicly, and uh, so we hear all about these different layers of things and and things that happened after that, 
uh, and the debris field from the crash and all that, uh, trying to figure out what happened and how it happened and all that. So it's interesting to see, you know, I'm getting to a question here somewhere, but it's, it's um, just safety being such a huge part of what you're doing in each one of these launches. Well, but that, that's good insight, uh, Lyle. You know, we would never have gotten off the surface of the earth if it had to be 100% safe. So every system has some elements of accepted risk. And it's about how much risk are you willing to take to do this important work? But everything in life comes with risk. We, we have risk here in Houston just driving down <laughs> The road. I'm not sure if it's safer to launch in a space shuttle or go down <laughs> I-45 here in Houston. Right. Kidding, but but really, it, it is all about accepted risk. Even right. even in this COVID environment, we are willing to accept some risk, or right. we just button ourselves up in the, our houses and never go out. So, but we weigh those risks, we mitigate those risks, we try to find up find better solutions to control the risks. But at the end of the day, if if you're going to do something that's interesting or pushing the envelope, it's gonna carry some risk. And so as we analyze the space shuttle during return to flight, we better understood a lot of our systems and recognized that it did carry some risk. And I think that's one of the reasons that we kind of limited the number of shuttle flights in the program because we recognized that the space shuttle was inherently a little bit too much, too dangerous for a spaceship to humans on and we want that's why we diverted our resources to build these new vehicles that were safer and SpaceX just launched last month and it was a safer vehicle than the space shuttle yeah. it is a safer vehicle than the space shuttle and so will Boeing Starliner and so uh, we're in this new this new generation of spaceships that are that are going to keep us safer yeah it's it's um i had a track coach growing up who used to talk about uh, when you're training, um, the, sort of the idea is I, I, if you could make every step just slightly faster than the last one, uh, you know, or make everything you do just slightly better than the last time you did it, you're going to be better off. And and it seems to me like that's the kind of approach you take in this sort of a thing. Is like It's like, yeah, we built this thing. It's great. It's working. But we need to keep working at it to make it better so it's safer and more successful. And, you know, because like you say, you're doing the good work. You're doing all this. You're gathering all this information. You're doing all this science on the space station. You're doing all this great stuff. Uh, but you're not doing it just for its own, own use. It's, it's, right. it's there to do something else with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you look at the evolution of airplanes and cars and just about any technology that that c carries some risk, we're getting better and better. The cars when I was in high school were flat out dangerous compared to the cars we have now, and airplanes are much safer. And so spaceships are on the cutting edge of these aerospace vehicles that we're flying, and we're, we're learning a lot. And, and we've had some failures, but every cycle, every innovation cycle, we get better and better. And so this new generation of spaceships we're working on and the, and the next generation of spaceships that, that the kids are thinking about, uh, <laughs> they're going to be better than the ones we have now. And, right. and it's exciting. Exactly right. So uh, your first flight on the space shuttle was, uh, was also the Endeavor in 2008. Right. Uh, 
now thinking about that accepted risk and even though this is sort of later in the space shuttle program so we've 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 had humans in space uh quite a bit uh at this point but you're still climbing aboard a, a you know a spaceship on a rocket that's going to get blasted off out of our atmosphere um what does that feel like uh and of course you come from uh you know the world of being a test pilot. So maybe your mentality is a little different than the rest of us, but what does that feel like? Well, first of all, it was very exciting. And I actually liken the feeling that I had before my first combat mission in the Persian Gulf War in Desert Storm to my first space shuttle flight, because mm -hmm. there were some similar feelings. One is you're prepared, you're ready, right. uh, you're confident but there's an unknown on the other side, something that you've not seen yet. Right. You, you think you know what you're going to expect on the flight, but you just don't know. So what you want to do is you want to do the best you can, focus on the task at hand, don't make a silly mistake, right. and execute. Right. And so I was so excited. I'd been, like I said, I'd been thinking about being an astronaut since I was seven years old, and this was the moment that I was actually gonna to get to go into space. So I was crazy excited. And I did have a healthy respect for, there's a little bit of unknowns, a little bit of accepted risk here, but it's well worth it. Right. In fact, I'd go to space a third time if I could, my wife would kill me before I launched. But, uh, but, but absolutely, I highly recommend an opportunity for anyone to go in space. Now I know you said you don't like roller coasters and I'm on the other side of the spectrum. I. I, I love jumping out of airplanes, perfectly good airplanes, and I, I, I love roller coasters. I'm not an adrenaline junkie, but I just do like exciting right. adventures, and flying in space was absolutely worth the wait. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, one thing you hear astronauts say, uh, and almost, I don't want to say everyone, because I haven't talked to everyone, but I hear you know, in interviews and whatever, is once you leave the atmosphere and you're able to turn back and look back at the earth, um, it sort of changes their perspective on humanity, their uh, Absolutely. place in the universe. What, what's your experience with that? Well, it was a spiritual moment when I first looked back at the earth. And like you said, it does change you. Most every astronaut will talk about the overview effect, or they will talk about how you can't miss that the whole planet is so globally interconnected. Right. I mean, during this pandemic, that was a wake-up call for a lot of people around the world that, hey, we're all in this together. I mean, it's not my words, but I say it often to, to adults and kids alike. Right. Spaceship Earth is, right. is nothing more than a a, a 8,000 mile diameter orb that is a closed loop ecosystem that we all share. Right. And it's really important for us to get along with each other, to understand each other and take care of our crewmates right. and, and not just be a passenger along for the ride and also take care of your ship, you know? So all of those issues that, that resonate in this pandemic are central to this notion that we're all in this together. It, it's it's really um, it, it's really a spiritual event when you travel around the world every ninety minutes and see all the different countries between fifty one north and fifty one south. We just live on a beautiful planet. 
Yeah, it's it's sort of. I like, wish everybody could see that because I think we might be a better civilization uh, by just spending some time looking at our wonderful planet. Fantastic. Um, my wife Heather gave me this question to ask you because uh, she just wonders. She's 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 uh, um, she's an acupuncturist. But she's uh, also she, her background is in biochemistry, so she's got a scientific background as well. And she said, "God, if I, I asked her what if you can ask an astronaut anything, what would it be?" And she thought about it a little bit, and she said, "You know, when you get up there, and all of a sudden you're in zero gravity, and you're floating around, what does that feel like? I mean, because you like you train for it." Uh, but now you're up there and you're going to be there for two weeks or so floating around. What, what does that feel like? What is that experience like? Well, it was magical, Lyle. I mean, completely magical. My first flight, actually this flight on the photo behind me, this crew behind me, STS-123, uh -huh. um, we, uh, as soon as main engine cutoff happened and we were off the external tank, which is the big fuel tank that fuels the three main shuttle engines. It was serene, beautiful. It was dark. It was a night launch. And I was laughing. I, I must have laughed hysterically for a good 10 seconds because <laughs> it was so crazy to be floating in space. Now we were still strapped into our seats, but you could feel your arms come right. up and everything got lighter and all our checklists and things start floating. Right. It was like being in a different world. And, and I, and my reaction to it is I just started laughing because it was so <laughs> crazy. And so, you know, you you really can't train for zero gravity. We have the vomit comet. We took, I took my, you know, yeah. under, odd parabolas in the in the vomit comet and experienced zero gravity 30 seconds at a time mm -hmm. but when you're floating for you know just a few minutes it, it I, I just thought it was unbelievable and I enjoyed every single moment of the 32 odd days that I spent in space fantastic because uh, floating in space working was more fun play was more fun sleeping is amazingly comfortable uh, I just recommend zero gravity for everyone. <laughs> I wish you could sell it down here. <laughs> it's uh, it's funny because it's it's yeah. She said Heather told Heather said you know you spend your whole life walking around, you know more or less attached to the earth, and you know just wondering what it would feel like to be now all of a sudden you're not and and you can't change it. It's not like you can strap magnets to your soles of your feet or something yeah so we have we have to adapt uh when we get up there and it, and it takes a while our bodies are a little bit confused our semicircular canals our vestibular vestibular system our vestibular system <laughs> goes goes crazy mm -hmm. a little bit and some people get actively you know sick mm -hmm. uh, but uh but when the within a few days most everybody's adapted and accustomed to zero gravity once they're up there for six or six months or a year they come back and then the readaption process to gravity actually can be a long process. Really? Wow. So, you know, you're up there, I guess your missions were about, uh, you said 32 days, so they're about 16 days a piece, give or take. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any sense of, of, and looking back at the earth, do you have any sense of like missing anything, homesickness, anything like that? Or is that? I think I might've been a little bit, homesick 
but it was such an adventure that I, that wasn't a central emotion to me. Some people, if people are up there for two, three, six months, I've heard that they get a little bit homesick, but with me after 14 days, we were undocking on both my flights. I really wanted to stay longer. Right. And it was such an adventure to share with the wife and kids on the ground. Right. I remember my second flight, the cupola, the, the big bay window at the bottom of the space station. Right. Uh, we had a robotic uh, workstation in there, and I spent a lot of my time doing robotic work on, on that second flight. And so I spent a lot of time in the cupola. And one of my private uh, meetings with my family, a video teleconference, I was in the cupola with a laptop sharing the view as we went from Michigan across the Atlantic, across Europe, the Med to Madagascar, that 20 minutes, I shared the view with them on this laptop, then I'd turn it around and they'd share with me what was going on at home. And so technology allows us to be closer to our families in space uh, than what it was like in the Apollo days, for example. Yeah, I would think. It's um, it's just fascinating. It's really fascinating. So um, your second flight was, like I said, the second to last flight of the shuttle program. Um, and we talked a little bit about, um, you know, the sort of the inherent risk of the shuttle program. And, and so you think closing down the shuttle program to look for new, you know, whatever the next generation of technology is, was good decision, bad decision, could have been better, could have been worse. Well, okay. So at the time, I, my personal thought was that we were a little premature and retiring a very capable technology. Right. I think the we weren't going to be able to keep the space shuttle going, though, and start these other projects because right. of fiscal constraints. So there was going to have to be a transition from the you know mainstay, the space shuttle, to what followed. So I guess my answer to that question is yes to both. I, I wish that we could have made the gap a little shorter. I mean, it really was a nine-year gap between the last shuttle flight from U.S. soil and the first Dragon, you know, SpaceX Dragon launch. That that was a nine-year gap. I wish we could have figured out how to make that gap shorter. I wish we could have maybe flown a few more sunset flights with the space shuttle because all the space shuttles that are in the museums around the world, they were the best shuttles they ever had been those last flights that that last flight of endeavor we had no major malfunctions at all not even any sort of minorish but significant malfunctions it's just everything worked perfectly and so yeah so uh, so i was disappointed that we retired the space shuttle but on the other hand it had to happen at some point and you can't do too many parallel programs yeah i mean it's a shame to have not had the uh, capability of launching crew uh, from U.S. soil for so long. Uh, right. I think, yeah, if we could have lead, done a little bit of a lead turn on the technology and start working on the next thing and get something, start the competition a little bit sooner so that we would have a, uh, a viable launch from the U.S. soil for less than nine years, that would have been my preference. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the calendar in the space program is, is a lot longer than it is in a lot of other industries. So, yeah, you got to work on it until you get it right. <laughs> right, exactly right. So with all of the now sort of privatizing of, of uh, 
space industry going on right now. We talked about SpaceX and some of the others, um, the Boeing um, uh, vehicle. Um, maybe there won't be as much of a uh, an issue with with keeping you know crew going up from you know this continent. Uh, well, uh, so I, I think so. I think we are in, we've entered into a phase where. Uh, commercial companies are increasingly getting involved, not only with, you know, human transportation, but all of the sorts of things that we are sending up to space, payloads, satellites, um, nanosatellites, constellations, uh, and, and people. And we're, and we're planning to go further into space. So as, as the, you know, commercial market builds a business case for space, which is happening. Yeah. Just like it did as we built commerce with the new world centuries ago, mm -hmm. that evolution is happening. How quickly it happens it is a different issue, right? But but it's happening in a small way. And and I'm sure you're going to ask a little bit about the national lab, but, but commerce is entering low Earth orbit on the International Space Station. And there are companies that are making business cases much better than they did five or 10 years ago. And so human transportation is another one of those. And uh, there, there are lots of elements uh, to uh, the business case for human transportation. Astronauts, uh, government astronauts using a commercial vehicle is just, just one of them. So yeah. there, we're going to see a lot of different technologies coming, in the, coming to bear over the next 50 years. Right, right. And, and you served as CEO of uh, CASIS for several years. Uh, cases for anybody listening who doesn't know, it's the uh, Center for the Advancement of Science in Space, which has since sort of rebranded itself as the uh, International Space Station Lab or something. National Lab, yep. Yeah, uh, the National Lab. And so that over time, for so long, it was always uh, at least seen publicly as, you know, oh, that's that NASA thing, that's that government thing, blah, blah, blah. But in, in actuality, the lab became a place for a lot of businesses to conduct experiments in, a, in an environment that they couldn't otherwise access. Right. So we, we were bu busy building the space station as a nation from uh, 1998 until 2011. So, you know, that, that was the assembly period. But we were living in the house that we were building and trying to do meaningful research and long duration space flight experiments and everything else starting, you know, just a few years after we started assembly of the space station. So that evolution at first belonged to just NASA until 2005. And then we, the, the, our U S government said, Hey, you know, we need to have this national lab that focuses on other things besides NASA's objectives. And so again, it was an evolutionary process. CASIS was actually formed in 2000. 11, 2012, I think is when they opened the doors. And um, no, it would have been, sorry, CASIS opened in 2011. It was the NASA Authorization Act of 2010. Um, but then half of the space station uh, access was deemed to go to innovation, non-traditional users, commercial companies to make a business case in space. And this, this progress has continued on till today where there are more facilities, commercial facilities, and other things going on in the space station that are not solely controlled by NASA, but by this 
larger community of, uh, of business people, universities, and others. Yeah, I mean, I know uh, it's sort of an oddball example, although uh, I guess a good one. Budweiser has been doing uh, experiments on the on the International Space Station for several years now, looking mainly, I guess, agricultural, uh, you know, how to grow the, the things they need to make their products uh, better uh, up there, uh, which seems at first kind of like, wow, space bear? But second, second, with a second look, it's like, no, they're really trying to, you know, push their own technologies in a way they maybe weren't able to here on, on Earth. Well, if you think about the laboratories here on the Earth, uh, there are, you know, we take, we have vacuum chambers on the Earth. Mm-hmm. We have big, uh, super cool laboratories. We have super hot laboratories, high pressure laboratories. Uh, and but but the thing that we can't do here on the earth is take gravity out of the equation. Right. So the only place that you have continuous near zero gravity conditions, microgravity conditions, is on the International Space Station for more than a few seconds in a parabola, right? For example, or a drop tower. And so physical and biological processes fundamentally change. Uh, can change when the gravity vector is taken out of the equation. So scientists can study things that you just can't study here on the earth. And we're just scratching the surface now, but there are a lot of technologies and a lot of um, science that's being done on the International Space Station for that reason. That's fantastic. And um, so when you left, you left CASIS um, when, 2018? Right. And uh, and so you have a, a couple or a handful of really kind of what I think are really interesting projects going on and interesting efforts you're working on. Um, you mentioned Gen Space to me earlier. What what are you working on? What's what's uh, what do you what do so, you where is it going? Because you're, you're kind of in an interesting place that most people aren't. You know, you're kind of in this in this um, freelance <laughs> okay. No, so so I've been I've been you know I've been working I was on. Say you my, have you have a unique background that not <laughs> very few people have, and it, it enables you to talk to people about what they're doing in a way that maybe most of us don't have an opportunity to. Well, so so the 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 guest speaker part of the uh, of the job, you know, I've kind of worked on that over the last two and a half years, and I've done some interesting uh, uh, conferences and keynotes commencements, other things. Yeah. Uh, and I got involved with the startup community with GenSpace, the Global Entrepreneurship Network. They had they pulled together a space delegation around the time I left CASIS. So that was a good fit for me to join with them. Right. And they're, they're thinking of uh, entrepreneurship in space as a location that, that, you know, everybody's invited around the world globally. It's a really cool thing. I got involved with the Traverse City Space Accelerator up in uh, Traverse City, Michigan, a place that I love yeah. and, and hope to retire someday. And also there was a STEM nonprofit that needed my help. So I worked with them for about a year and a half. Actually, I'm still working with them. I'm on their board of directors now. Uh, right. but, uh, but again, promoting STEM and uh, creative thinking in Northwest Michigan Right. where there's a, a great talent pool and, and the, the mission of Newton's Road is to help bring uh, those opportunities to some of the rural areas in, in Northwest Michigan that wouldn't have um, seen those opportunities uh, in previous years. 
and they're doing a great job at it. That's fantastic because I, I I've worked with um, I actually interviewed um, a woman I know uh, Kadira Abdur Rahim who runs a, a foundation in Atlanta. So it's it's not the rural uh, inaccessibility to technology and high speed internet and all those problems that you have maybe in in Newton's Road. It's more inner city the inner city problems that go along with education, and they have for example. Um, they're located in, a, in an area where the high school graduation rate is something like 43 or 45%. And of their um, participants, of their people, of their kids in their program, they have a 100% uh, high school graduation rate since 2004. So that's a great metric. That's awesome. It's, a, well, it's, it's, the, it's the metric that's, that they use to talk about themselves all the time, and it's fantastic. So, but, but these are all those things that, and, and to get involved in, edu- in education like this, like your Newton's Road effort, is, is, that's sort of, to me, that's sort of the thing that makes the link to, you know, what comes next. You know, we're talking about, you know, we're working on a project, and then the next time we do it, it's going to be a little bit better. And the only way you're able to do that is if you have the resources available, the people who understand those things and are willing to challenge those knowns uh, to make it better. Yep. You know, one of the things we said in Newton's Road is, is talent is relatively uniformly spread around the country, but opportunities are uneven. And so that's why your friend at the nonprofit Atlanta and groups in Newton's Road and other underserved communities, uh, having those opportunities and, and harvesting the talent, uh, enriching those communities uh, with kids that are going to lead us into the next generation, you know, the, in this rapidly changing digital world. So um, I'm really excited about these different groups. Also, as I've gotten older and hopefully a little bit wiser, I'm trying to do a little bit more give back. And, uh, and this is one of the ways is, is I give back is through these organizations and other workforce and youth development organizations like the Boy Scouts or the Boys and Girls Clubs, for example. So um, that's fantastic. I think it's really important. And I think it is. And the, and, and the entrepreneurial side of it, I think, is, is equally important. And I think tends to open up opportunity more than sort of, this may be unfair, but sort of more than the, the sort of traditional large corporate kind of environment, uh, you know, because the, the, uh, the entrepreneurial organizations tend to be nimbler and able to, to do things quicker and make decisions faster and, and ideally get, you know, the younger, more energetic people into those roles uh, to think about things in different ways. Yeah, and new spaces is coming of age, and there's a lot of opportunity and innovation in new space. There are a lot of failures, obviously, um, but I think you know failure and innovation are linked to each other. And the quicker you fail and then come up with a new iteration that's right. better, that, that's how we innovate. It's just how fast you learn from that failure. Yeah. So um, I think, and and also the diversity of opinion. And diversity doesn't come culturally or politically, but just diversity of thought. Right. Um, and just thinking about new ideas and, and not saying why, but why not? Those sorts of questions. Right. And being willing to take the risk to try new ideas. Right. And that's true. And I think you talk about failure and I don't, I, so, so often, I, I don't think there really is, I don't want to say never any such thing. I never like to say never, but uh, there's rarely 
such a thing as a complete failure. You know, you do a failure and you realize there's, there's, there's things that were successes in that effort. And there are things that you can learn from testing something to its limit to, you know, make it better the next time. So, you know, that's all, it's part of the test and rebuild better mentality, you know? Exactly. And, And like when I talk to kids about failure, especially at like, for example, a commencement, it's like, don't be so worried about, you know, failure, try new things. If it doesn't work, just pivot and regroup. And you can change careers. These days, people change careers multiple times uh, in in a in a few few years. Whereas you don't have to have the same job for forty years, and you don't have to be doing the same uh, job. You don't need to have the same position in a company for thirty years either. You can go to other lines of work within a company. So, I think we're in a much more agile society. Um, so I'll stop Love there. That. That's good. <laughs> no, that's right. It's good. It's good. So I'll ask you one more thing. Uh, Cause you said you were about seven when you got bitten by the space bug. Uh, if you'll pardon the term. Uh, <laughs> um, and when I was a kid, you know, you ask a little kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you say, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a, you know, whatever. And, um, and my son is 10 and he, you know, we visit the space center and he's overwhelmed by what he sees there. He thinks it's all really, really cool. As someone who has been there, as someone who has done that, what could you say to a young boy or girl who, who has that in their mind? Well, a few things. One is there are going to be more and more opportunities to fly in space in decades to come just like the evolution of cars, airplanes, the same is gonna be true for space. I don't know exactly when that's gonna happen, but there are gonna be commercial uh, passengers flying in space in decades to come. So there's gonna be more possibility. Secondly, I would say the important thing is to do what you love, because if you love it, then you'll, do better at it and you'll have a better opportunity to fly in space because all occupations are, are going to be represented in space right now there. I don't know of any attorneys in space yet, although there may have been <laughs> some attorneys in the new class, but I'm, I'm just kidding. I always pick on attorneys. We have, we have lots of doctors, teachers, engineers, scientists, uh, historians, veterinarians that are, have been astronauts. And so, but the thing they have in common is you know the veterinarian that went to space. He was a darn good veterinarian, wow. and he and he had a, he was a Renaissance man, is a Renaissance man, um, and uh, and the chemists they're at top of their game. The pilots I'd like to think that they're they're toward the top of their game. Right. And so do what you love and do it very well, and that's probably mm-hmm. the key to being an astronaut and not doing something because you think it's the right intermediate step before you can become an astronaut. Right. Don't do something that you think you need to do, become an astronaut, do what you love, and then you can be an astronaut. Fantastic. Okay, Greg, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. This has been fascinating for me. Lyle, it's been great talking to you. It's been a number of years since we last talked, and I'm glad that you reached out to me and, and had this interview. Uh, this, is, this was fun. Thanks so much. You bet.
So that was my conversation with Greg Johnson, Air Force Colonel, pilot, astronaut, and yes, my first guest to have his own Wikipedia listing. After we talked, and I'm still kicking myself a little bit about the fact that the recording was turned off, my son Aiden, age 10, came into my office and asked Greg a handful of questions. It's a pretty cool thing to have a chance to talk to a spaceman when you're 10. The interesting thing was Greg's response. He honestly said he loved talking with a youngster who was so interested in space and exploring the universe beyond what we see every day. It's more than a little inspiring to see how children with an interest can draw joy out of someone who's experienced and achieved so much in his lifetime. And that's why I love these conversations. They really challenge me to think about the world in a way I'm not accustomed to. I'll have to get him back on the show sometime soon and capture his conversation with Aiden. Thanks for listening. If you find yourself enjoying the StoryForge podcast, please give us a review at Apple Podcasts or we're on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps others find the show and hopefully enjoy it as much as you do. All recording, editing, and executive producing tasks are handled by yours truly, Lyle Smith of NimbleSmith, the content marketing agency. This podcast would not be possible without the sincerely excellent help of our friend and associate producer, Anthony Sergi, who produces numerous podcasts, including the truly excellent A Guest in the House about all things hip-hop. The music on the podcast was provided by Jody Nardone and the Jody Nardone Trio, Lights Will Guide You Home album. And if you'd like to send us questions or feedback or suggestions for other subjects or guests, you can reach us through the StoryForge website. That's thestoryforge.com, all words separated by hyphens. Or you can email us at cheers at nimblesmith.com, spelled N-Y-M-B-L-E-S-M-I-T-H. Thanks very much.